live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Selling stimulus, Janet Yellen predicts full employment next year with Biden's bill. Golden Goose SoftBank says it's laying golden eggs as profits surge. And Bitcoin Bonanza, the digital asset, hits record highs on news Tesla is buying. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. It's the day after the Super Bowl and ageless wonder Tom Brady's seventh, yes, seventh championship title. The Bees are truly all the buzz today. We've got Brady and his team, the Buccaneers, and not forgetting the Bulls with U.S. stocks beginning the week at all-time highs. Now, speaking of ageless wonders, the bull market remains resilient. U.S. futures are all green with 30 minutes to go. Until the open, the S&P set to rise for a sixth straight session, in fact, as hopes for stimulus support outweigh fears of new virus variants, at least for now. Both Europe and Asia also higher. As you can see, Italian stocks, the outperformers, up over 7% this month alone as key political parties back the former ECB chief Mario Draghi's attempt to form a new government. What about Asia? Meanwhile, Kia and Hyundai were an eye disappointment. They say they're not working with Apple on a new self-driving car, as had been reported last week. Kia shares, as you can see, down some near 15 percent. No disappointment, however, for Wall Street after a surprisingly good Q4 earnings season or muted expectations after last year's COVID-induced slump. But stock markets aren't the economy and Wall Street will continue to watch the Washington aid negotiations closely. Far more, of course, and I think they'll care about the political theatre there as lawmakers engage in the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump this week. Why? While the outcome appears preordained, the votes are just not there to convict him. Senate Republicans this weekend calling the trial a waste of time and a dangerous precedent. If you believe he committed a crime, he can be prosecuted like any other citizen. Impeachment is a political process. We've never impeached a president once they're out of office. I think this is a very bad idea. Zero chance of conviction. 45 Republicans have said it's not even a legitimate proceeding. So it's really over before it starts. Stay tuned to CNN all this week for complete live coverage of this historic impeachment proceedings. Let's get to the drivers. Full employment in the U.S. by next year. Janet Yellen says the labor market could be healthy again in 2022 if Congress passes President Biden's stimulus package. The Treasury Secretary told CNN how she sees the outlook for the United States as it emerges from the pandemic. There's absolutely no reason why we should um, suffer through a long, slow recovery. Do you have a timeline, though, for full for full uh, reemployment? Well, I, I, I would expect that if this package is passed, that um, we would get back to full employment next year. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, good morning. That would be an incredible recovery. Jason Furman, the former head of the Council of Economic Advisers, said to us, we could even do it with this bill in six to nine months, assuming you can match demand with supply. All these people want to get back to work, but can you get them in the jobs quick enough? And this is crucial no matter what happens with this bill. It really is. And this bill is a fiscal fire hose, right? And she's saying that the fire is burning so 
badly that you need to get the relief out there uh, quickly. But it's a different kind of a crisis because it's not the kind of thing where you can stimulate demand and then suddenly the economy is better. We have a virus that is artificially on top of all of this. So get the virus under control, get vaccines widely accepted and widely used, uh, and then you can start start talking about matching people uh, back with, with jobs again. One thing that I'm very concerned about are the number of people who are uh, long-term unemployed. It's almost 40 percent now. That's a real trouble sign here for matching people again uh, when we get on the other side of this. So you want to see many of those people, granted, economists say are probably in leisure and hospitality. They work at bars and restaurants. And hopefully when this when this the depression of, of, of covid is taken off of this, those people can be matched back uh, with that work. But we just won't know until we get there. No, we won't. And Christine, fascinating to see former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers writing an op-ed last week pushing back on the size of this program, saying, look, you're, you're risking fueling inflation. You're perhaps not doing longer term investments. That could add to the inequality. These feel like, uh, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, first class problems in the face of all the challenges we just mentioned. <laughs> Uh, you know, people have been asking me about this all weekend, and I keep saying, you, you know, you can't worry about the cost of the water when the house is burning down and you need to get it out of the fire hose, right? And what the White House is saying is that not only do they have to put the fire out, but then they have to rebuild the house after that. There will be likely another phase of spending, probably the infrastructure kind of phase uh, after this. So more spending, they hope, will be coming. You know, when you talk to insiders and you talk to, to people who have, you know, been in the crisis 12 years ago, they kind of like, kind of like tilt their head a little bit by why Larry Summers is weighing in on this. It's not helpful for the Democrats' cause when you have Republicans or who, so many of them who say, um, you know, they're worried about deficit spending or they don't want to hand Joe Biden this, this Democratic unity wind right, right, out, off the, <laughs> right out of the gate. So I think it's been an unhelpful diversion, but I don't think it has held back um, the Democrats' unity at this point very much. Yeah, and I agree that we do need to think about the long term and the restructuring of what the economy looks like and bringing up the bottom end. But yep. choose your timing. <laughs> Christine and ta- to be worried about inflation. I mean, everybody's been worried about inflation for 10 years has been dead wrong. So yeah, I mean, still somebody, waiting. at some point, somebody's going to be right, but it's just <laughs> probably not right now. Still waiting. Yes. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. All right. Japan's SoftBank posting a profit of $8 billion from its vision fund in the latest quarter, thanks to things like Uber and DoorDash investments. But performance wasn't always so good at its asset management unit. That's where the options are struck. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo with more. Selena, this is a monster business. It's not just about the Vision Fund. There are lots of things going on. So just walk us through the net result of what we saw, because it was a strong quarter. Absolutely. The sentiment very much is that the Vision Fund is back after being criticized for backing troubled startups. Masayoshi Sun is very much back on track and his transformation of this business into telecoms, into an investing and tech giant really seems to be paying off. So you saw SoftBank Vision Fund really being boosted by these frothy markets that boosted its value in companies like Uber, as well as this IPO boom of companies like Open Door and DoorDash. So some stats here is that SoftBank invested about 680 million dollars into DoorDash for a stake that's now worth about nine billion dollars. Its 7.7 billion investment in Uber is now worth more than 11 billion dollars. Now, Sun brushed off concerns about the bubble and said that he is still bullish about artificial intelligence, saying the important thing is that the AI revolution has just begun and it's an opportunity if the markets go up and it's not a peak, 
it's an opportunity if the markets go down, Julia, and it's not a peak if it goes up. But you mentioned the trading business. It's not doing so well. SoftBank wiped out a significant chunk of gains with that controversial uh, trading and derivatives. In fact, posted a 285 billion yen derivatives loss in the period. He did say on the call, however, that this asset management business is in a test drive mode. Julia? Yes. Is that a hedge fund business, therefore, that's doing badly in options trading? Or is that a hedge to some of the other products? We won't know, but um, fascinating to see. You know, they've had a few what have been called by the media rotten eggs. We work. And that investment was an example. But uh, Masayoshi san did talk about reproducing this era of golden eggs. Talk about what he was saying there, because I believe there was even diagrams shown. Yeah, Julia, it was a very memorable moment in his earnings <laughs> presentation. He actually went on for quite a long time with images and even playing music at one point to back up his golden eggs metaphor. He said, quote, we are finally in the harvesting stage since the Vision Fund launched. The number of golden eggs is in accelerating mode. And the data does seem to back that. Sun said that Vision Fund 1 and 2 have invested in a total of 131 companies. Some 15 companies in the Vision Fund have gone public so far and he says SoftBank may see between 10 and 20 companies go public a year across its fund and analysts say that the timing is good right now that it could continue to see an IPO windfall for this year IPO fatigue has not set in yet there's still a lot of liquidity out there I also want to mention that SoftBank's biggest asset is Alibaba shares plunged last quarter because of the antitrust probe that's happening in China there are also concerns about Jack Ma's whereabouts even though he has resurfaced and Sun said that he has been in touch with Ma he didn't go into details he also said that the scrutiny from regulators in China is part of the natural evolution of the technology industry there and that it shouldn't be seen as any different from the regulations that we see in the US and UK. Yeah, fascinating. And obviously that performance in spite of uh, the share price fall of Alibaba that we saw, of course, in the quarter. Selena, great point. Thank you, as always, uh, for your analysis. Let's parallels with this next driver too. The price of Bitcoin surging after Tesla revealed it bought $1.5 billion worth of the cryptocurrency. Tesla also saying it may start accepting Bitcoin as a payment method for their cars. Paul and Monica joins us with the details. Paul, there's two stories here. There's one which is the corporate and the greater institutional interest in Bitcoin as potentially um, with utility function as a payment function, but also the fact that Tesla itself is perhaps now not only a car company, but also a hedge fund too. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure I'd go that far. I think that <laughs> Tesla would argue, that Elon Musk would argue that he is using his company's cash, investing it in an asset that could generate more returns than the dollar, which obviously doesn't do uh, all that much. You know, you can argue whether or not that's a hedge fund-like behavior, but clearly... Tesla is following the lead of another software company, MicroStrategy, and their CEO, Michael Saylor, who's been very bullish on cryptocurrencies. And he was the first major executive to have his firm invest corporate cash into cryptocurrency. So he already has uh, sent a congratulatory tweet to Tesla this morning uh, saying that this is good news for Tesla and for Bitcoin and, uh, you know, the cryptocurrency industry writ large. It means that, you know, it helps validate the investments in Bitcoin that MicroStrategy has made. And I think that there could be 
others uh, you know, in the future that might adopt this model as well. First car company to do it, to your point, but perhaps we see more and more corporates um, getting involved in doing this too. But to your point, Paul, and I'll push back a little bit, you have to get board approval to do this. I fully appreciate in a world of zero interest rates, having lots of cash on the balance sheet is quite painful, quite frankly, if you can't do anything with it. But this is a risky bet. You could burn cash, lose money if you're investing some of the cash that you have in your balance sheet. And I was just doing the maths, and I think this is around 7%, 6-7% of the cash that they, they hold right now, dumped in a volatile risky asset like Bitcoin. It is a bet. It's yeah, a risky bet. It is a significant <laughs> chunk of change. And obviously, Bitcoin prices are very volatile. Bitcoin surging today on this news. It is uh, interesting that uh, you know uh, Elon Musk, despite some of his public affection for Dogecoin and other cryptocurrencies <laughs> that he's talked about on Twitter lately, that he is choosing, obviously, to go with Bitcoin since it is, by and large, the largest and most dominant cryptocurrency. So, you know, this doesn't mean that uh, Tesla may not invest in Ether and Dogecoin and others down the road, but I think right now it's mainly Bitcoin. But you're right, Julia, Bitcoin continues to be a very volatile asset. It doesn't behave like a currency. Some would argue it doesn't even behave like a commodity. It really behaves more like a stock that day traders uh, can love and hate. And right now it's definitely love, but we've seen what can happen when Bitcoin prices plunge That happened last year before they rallied back really sharply. Absolutely. And Elon can invest in Dogecoin because obviously he tweets about this um, a lot and gets people fired up. But um, with Tesla and with investors' money too, um, yeah, you have to be a little bit more select about your choices, perhaps. Paul and Monica. Yeah. Let's be honest here. If you're investing in Tesla, you have to invest in Tesla. If you're investing in Tesla, it's because you trust Elon. You're not investing in Tesla because someone else might be calling the shots and may do something different. It's... A love affair with Elon, make no mistake. And now you're investing in crypto too. <laughs> Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. All right, so here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Rescuers are searching for at least 177 people who are still missing in northern India after an avalanche of water, dust and rocks burst through a dam. 20 people have confirmed lost their lives. Part of a Himalayan glacier fell into a river on Sunday, causing the avalanche. Most of those missing are workers on two hydroelectric projects in the area. For a third day in a row, pro-democracy protesters were out in force in Myanmar. They are demanding an end to the military coup that last week took down the government of Aung Suu Kyi. A protest in the capital city was broken up after police threatened to open fire on demonstrators. The Australian Tennis Open is underway and both Serena and Venus Williams started out with victories. Venus is 40 years old, Serena 39, but age does not seem to be slowing these ladies down. They're still youngsters, though, compared to the 43-year-old Tom Brady, who won his seventh Super Bowl on Sunday. Brady didn't just lead Tampa Bay to victory. He was the game's MVP, most valuable player. CNN World Sports Koiwai is in Tampa with the latest. So great to be there and so great to have you with us. Just talk us through the game because it really, I watched most of it and it felt very one-sided, quite frankly. It was. It was all Tom Brady's side of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They were playing in a Super Bowl in their home stadium for the first time ever. 
in NFL history. Never happened before. But, but what's so impressive about Brady is, is you cannot buy a super team in the NFL like you can in the NBA where two or three stars will get you to the playoffs. A football roster is huge. 11 guys on offense, 11 more on defense, an entire special teams unit, and they all have to click at a high level. Well, that's why it's so impressive what Brady's teams have done over the last two decades. He's the type of player that brings out the best in everybody, Julia. He has an incorrigible work ethic. He sacrifices family time. His family left him have the entire house to himself for 12 days before this game in order to have supreme focus. His family on hand with him to celebrate on the field after the win. And he told reporters, Julia, just a bit ago about an unusual night when he got back home. Listen to this. I actually spent the night in my daughter's bed because I had five of my nephews and nieces in my bed. So (laughs) that was pretty unique. It was probably about two hours of sleep, so I'm going to be trying to get some extra sleep today. I think payback for him getting the entire house to himself for 12 days before the game. All the family, all the love. You know, Julie, I sat behind Stephanie Jensen, wife of Bucks center Ryan Jensen, who snaps the ball to Brady on every play. And she told me that her husband and the entire team has been lifted by Brady since his arrival here this season. He's held everyone accountable, not just to doing their job, but to doing it at a higher level than they ever thought they could. And uh, the, the work, she said, is never done as far as Brady is concerned. And it's paid off now. Wow. 12 days alone. Just that. He's a legend, isn't he? He's absolutely fantastic. Great to have you with us at the Super Bowl there in Tampa. Thank you. All right, still to come. On first move, a critical week in Washington. The Democratic Party stands united on the second impeachment of Donald Trump, but divided on the details of the stimulus deal and vaccine versus variant. South Africa halts its rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've got the latest next. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks look set to rise to records once again in early trading. Investors changing the focus from the Reddit trade to the reflation trade as Congress gears up to pass a massive Biden-led emergency aid plan within the next few weeks. Oil stocks actually were the strongest S&P gainers last week on hopes that fresh fiscal aid and a smoother vaccine rollout will help boost economic demand. Just take a look at Brent today, touching $60 a barrel. That's for the first time since the start of the pandemic. Elsewhere, U.S. 10-year Treasury yields are nearing one-year highs too amid renewed economic growth optimism. Some fearing that the stimulus bill might boost inflation too, as we were discussing earlier with Christine Romans. But stimulus will take a backseat to the spectacle in Washington this week as the second impeachment trial of former President Trump gets underway. Greg Valliere joins us now. He's the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, great to have you with us. It may take a backseat in investors' terms, quite frankly, because I don't think they um, they really care about what happens with this impeachment trial because I think they think the end result here is a given. But, Greg, what should we be watching politically this week? Well, I do think there's going to be new video of the horrible events of January 6th, maybe new testimony. I'm sure it'll be very emotional, but it won't change the outcome. So shorter, punchier, more visual than the first time around when we saw the first impeachment, at least in the House and then the Senate, but the result will be the same. Does it move the dial or the needle for Trump supporters, for Republicans that are looking at the future of the party, the future of their politics, really, and where 
Donald Trump fits? Well, I, I think we're going to be reminded again in the next several days of how dysfunctional the Republican Party is. They don't have their act together. Uh, they have way too many anti-Semites, white supremacists, uh, who they're tied to. So my sense is that this probably helps Biden a little. Biden's on a roll. Uh, I do think that he has a very good chance of getting his stimulus bill done by early March. It may not be 1.9 trillion, Julia. It might be 1.5 trillion, but they haven't spent most of the 900 billion we got a few weeks ago. So there's going to be an enormous infusion of money into the economy, over 2 trillion in the next few months. Yeah, I was just doing the math there quickly. 2.4 trillion, if you're right on the one and a half billion dollars getting agreed at this point. I mean, that has huge implications for the economy. It also has huge implications for the markets, too. Absolutely. I think it's good for stocks. Stocks are looking at an economy that could pick up uh, a little more quickly than ev everyone expected. But the big story, in my opinion, is for the bond market. We've seen just this morning yields have uh, raced even higher. Uh, I think the threat is that the Treasury 10-year bond yield will break through one and a quarter, might start heading to 1.50. Uh, and that at some point will become an irritant especially for the Federal Reserve. An irritant for, for the Federal Reserve, it's also going to have profound implications for the real economy too. Things like mortgages, for example, the housing market's been incredibly strong and one of the most supportive elements actually throughout this crisis. Oh, you look at so many areas now, Julia. You look at stocks. You look at, obviously, as you point out, housing. You look at manufacturing getting better. You look at... Uh, shipping, you know, ports, harbors are clogged right now with, with goods. So I, I think we're starting to see not everywhere. I mean, obviously, the labor market is not fully healed and we do need more medicine. But as I say, more medicine, yes, but we don't want an overdose. Is one and a half trillion dollars an overdose, Greg? Because this is part of the debate that's being had out there now and among the Democrats, let's be clear. Well, I, I think Janet Yellen would say no and Joe Biden would say no, but a very important player uh, raised concerns late last week. And that, of course, was Lawrence Summers, uh, center-left Democrat, former Treasury Secretary, who said, yeah, it's too much and it might lead to inflation. And I think, importantly, there are many people in the market uh, who are happy to see stocks go up, but also worry that we could overheat. I want to circle back and bring it back to impeachment because this is what the media certainly is going to be focusing on this week, even if investors certainly aren't. I remember you and I having a discussion during the first impeachment process and Donald Trump's popularity actually gained throughout that process. I mean, clearly he's not president anymore. And that's perhaps what the defense will argue. What are we doing now? He's he's not president. He's just an ordinary person. Do you think his popularity will rise again as a result of what we see this week, Greg? I'm not so sure about uh, this time. I think people will see films of what happened on that horrible day. I think people will listen to his rhetoric and conclude that he obviously played a role in instigating this mob that ransacked the Capitol. So I think as people are reminded this, of this more, you know, the idea that constitutionally he's no longer in office and we can't try him, I, I think the more potent uh, story is what happened on the 6th. For what reason? 
Oh, just the fact that they, they literally ransacked the Capitol, went into uh, Nancy Pelosi's office, five people died. Uh, it was it was a, a violent and when you when these people were interviewed as they were leaving, many of them said they went because they felt Donald Trump told them to. And this is going to be the overriding memory that t people take away from this week, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. I think so. And I think for Joe Biden, it's an opportunity for him to keep his distance and focus on the stimulus bill that I think he will get in a few weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Greg Vellier, great to have you with us, as always, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Thank you for that. The opening bell is next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday and start at record highs as the Wall Street Bulls come off their best week since November. Lots of earnings to watch as well this week from the likes of GM, Coke, Pepsi, Disney and Twitter. But as we've been discussing, the bigger picture in Washington that's going to be the overwhelming sentiment driver. Unprecedented new fiscal stimulus is coming in the United States. What that means for the global economy, jobs, but also interest rates remains the big unknown. What about for other assets too? Another look now at Bitcoin, the digital asset up more than 12%, sitting at record highs on word of a $1.5 billion investment from Tesla. Tesla may soon take payments in Bitcoin too. What about Amazon as well? Another giant tech name. Little changed in early trading as it braces for a challenging week on the labor front. Warehouse workers at a plant in Alabama begin voting today on whether to unionize. The first ever attempt by hourly Amazon workers to do so and clearly an important test case to be sure. Alicia Levine is Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management, and she joins us now. Alicia, great to have you on the show. Good morning. There are a whole host of reasons to be optimistic. Improved vaccine rollouts, that wall of more stimulus money potentially coming to earnings season better than expected. What's in the price for stocks? Good morning. Great to see you. Look, a lot is already in the price, Julia. And I think that you know, the, the increased pace of vaccination here in the U.S. is, is really critical to that. The U.K. is doing quite well, as you know. The U.S. kind of stumbled out of the gate. But now in the last few days, we're up to 2 million vaccinations a day. And I think when J&J &J comes on the market, we'll be up to 3 million vaccinations a day. Really important to get into some form of protection for the country. Earnings season has been spectacular. We're up 10% from when earnings season started on an earnings basis. That's actually historic. Um, you normally don't get that kind of bump. And that means that 2021 and 2022 earnings are only going higher. So there's a lot of support here for the market. We like it. Expectations were seriously beaten down. So when you see a beat like that, you sort of look at the expectations and go, hmm, did they, did they get it wrong? You call this an everything rally. What do you mean by That's an right. everything it rally? So I mean it in, this, in, the, in the equity sense, this is an everything rally because everything is working. And that's actually really unusual. I mean, this is one of the broadest markets in 70 years. 91% of the S&P 500, 91% is trading above the respective 200-day moving averages. Wow. And for the, right, and for the Russell 2000, that's 92%. 
above the 200-day moving averages. And what that means is that value is working and tech is working and growth is working and deep cyclical is working. I think the only thing I'd really stay away from here is staples just because that's the stay-at-home play that had a huge spike in the in the spring and probably growth will not continue on the same path. But everything on the equity side really is is rallying. And more most importantly, if you're getting scared about that, is that you don't get tops in the market when you have such a broad participation the way we have now. It gets thinner and thinner and thinner and a smaller number of stocks normally are holding the whole thing up. And then when you lose that support, you see a, a pullback. That's such a great point to consider. Something else actually that caught my attention was how you described the energy sector, sort of the bellwether. If this one is rallying, and I just mentioned that Brent price is now at $60 for the first time in a year. If this can rally, it's also a good sign. Why? Right, because it's really very counterintuitive. We have the most environmentally conscious administration, which of course isn't saying a lot for the U.S., but it is a change for the U.S. <laughs> we 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 are going to restrict on the reg, on the regulatory side drilling um, up for the energy side that has the perverse effect of raising oil prices and therefore strengthening oil companies. And, and the thing, the reason I say it's counterintuitive is because I think the investor base is drying up. Right. So you're seeing it's really a generational shift to investors who simply will not invest in fossil fuels as part of their overall allocation. If this sector can rally and go from two and a half percent of the S&P, which may not be painful if you're not in it, to let's say five percent of the S&P, then that tells you the rally is sustainable because it's a hated sector under owned by the investor class and moving anyway. So I think this is the sector to keep an eye on. Let's talk about rising bond yields because we are seeing rising bond yields all around the world. When does that become a problem? Simply because they offer a relatively decent amount of return for the first time in a long time, time versus stocks. At least That's right. And, and, <laughs> and of course, and of course, compared to the rest of the world, the, the sovereign debt here in the U.S. Is, is becoming more attractive. Look, it's a magic number. You know, we always get asked the magic number question. I think it's the rate of change question. I think that the market can absorb, let's call it seven to 10 basis points of improvement monthly on the 10 year. What's concerning will be the spiking and the kind of tantrum that could happen with all the stimulus. And that's really the risk to the market here, that we have inflation expectations moving much faster than growth expectations. And then that's what could really put a convulsion into the market. I'd be looking at bond yields and the rate of change where that's happening. The $1.9 trillion from the Biden administration, and part of the reason that yields moved so quickly last week, is that most of us thought that number would, was going to get whittled down to about 1.1 to maybe 1.2 trillion, either because of reconciliation or because of working with the Republicans. It's very clear that the Democrats are all in on this number. There may be some negotiation, but now our new baseline is 1.5 to 1.6 trillion dollars in stimulus in an economy that already had 15% of GDP last year. So, you know, there's a lot coming at the economy and you will see yields moving higher. Yeah, it's like $5 trillion. When you think about it, it's just a mesmerizing amount of money. It's no surprise that the market was like, wow, is this really happening? Alicia, speaking of wow, is this really happening? Bitcoin at record highs. How many questions do you get from 
potential investors saying, should I be in this? Have I missed the boat? Talk to me about your thoughts on this. It's really a daily question, and I think that some of the most telling conversations for me is when I have 85-year-olds who are interested in buying Bitcoin because they <laughs> think it's better than holding cash. And this is not, I'm not making this up. This is a true conversation. Market-savvy participants thinking cash is a losing bet and that Bitcoin is the way to go. Look, it's clearly an alternative store of value. I think that the, the ease with which it can be purchased compared to three years ago, when the first attention came to it on a broader basis, is part of what's driving this. It's much easier to purchase, and now you have an institutional investor base. I think this will attract regulators, make no mistake about it. This is out there, very, um, clear to me that central banks uh, uh, you know who met who regulate fiat currency will not be interested in having something out of their control so i think that's the really big risk here but it's getting broadly disseminated as an alternative to cash and i think we can't ignore it as an asset class yeah i think your point about ease of access here is vitally important too it's phenomenally more easy than it was two even one year ago Never mind the institutional right. interest. Alicia Levine, great to have you with us as always. Chief Strategist at BNY Mellon Investment Management. Stay safe and Thanks great to have you. you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right, up next, AstraZeneca's vaccine rollout paused in South Africa amid concerns that a key variant may evade it. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. South Africa is pausing its rollout of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. A recent study showed it offered only minimal protection against the variant that was first identified there. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now. Elizabeth, then what more do we know and what do you make of this decision? Julia, it's interesting what the South African authorities have decided to do. They say that there is enough evidence that they want to put a pause on this because this variant has now become really quite common in South Africa. It went from being just a few cases found on the Eastern Cape to something which has really um, in some ways become quite dominant in many parts of the country. So let's take a look at the study that was released just in the past couple of days that sort of that inspired or should I say directed the South African officials to make this decision. So it was only 2000 people. That is a small study. And what it found was that there was minimal protection against mild to moderate COVID-19. Now, this is important. They don't know what the efficacy is against severe COVID-19 because they didn't assess that. And that is really important because if it does turn out that this vaccine does work against severe COVID-19, that may make them say, you know what, we, we do want to use this. Um, it really depends on sort of what they find when they look at severe COVID-19 caused by this variant. But Julia, it's, you know, very interesting because they're the authors of this research, which has not been published and not been peer reviewed, say in their press release, look, there were theoretical observations that people who were vaccinated could still catch this variant and could still spread it. And they said this early data appears to confirm that that is true, that people can catch it and they can spread it. So I guess that's why they're saying let's put a pause on this because why do we want to vaccinate, use this vaccine if indeed people can still catch it and still spread it. Julia? Yeah, and they'll push forward with the Pfizer-BioNTech and with J&J and with &J in the interim, I guess. But Elizabeth, this is not the only variant first identified in South Africa. We've also got a variant first identified in Brazil. We've obviously got 
similar story with the, the UK variant as well. What are the vaccine makers doing about potentially creating booster shots or, or trying to help protect against these variants in future? So the companies have said that they are working on booster shots that will address these individual variants, you know, looking at the genetics of them. What can they do to change their shots so that it will include uh, protection against these variants? Interestingly, it's not that hard to do. I mean, what scientists tell me is you just sort of rejigger, reprogram, and you can come up with a booster relatively easily. But Julia, look at the difficulty we have had with the vaccine rollout. You and your guests were just talking about the difficulties in the U.S., this takes a while. So to tell people, oh, you need to get this shot and then this shot. And oh, there's a third shot you're going to need to get later. I mean, that is definitely it's quite a production. Yeah, I mean, just incredible the science that they're able to tweak this. But to your point, yeah, it has confidence implications and it has logistical implications, too. Uh, Elizabeth, great to have mm. you with us and your wisdom, as always. Elizabeth Cohen there. Thanks. In Malawi, the COVID-19 variant first identified in South Africa, driving a surge in cases and pushing hospitals to breaking point. David McKenzie joins us now from the East African nation. David, great to have you with us. What more can you tell us? Well, I'm here at the Queen's University Hospital, the teaching hospital, and behind me you see the tents where they've put up these tents to deal with the surge of this virus, as you said, because of this variant discovered in South Africa late last year. Now, we went inside the COVID ward here to see just how they are struggling with this wave. Here too, COVID-19 is inflicting its most painful toll. It went up, so they've started treating it. Okay. Your emotions are very blurred. You don't know when to be the doctor that's lost patients and then to be the family member or friend that's lost people and you're bereaved. Dr. Tamara Piri has a simple message for those who think COVID-19 is only severe in the Northern Hemisphere or that vaccines are only urgently needed in Europe and the United States. Now we're on to this second wave, which is a lot harder, so I think it's going to be a long year. Follow her on a round in southern Malawi's largest hospital, where shifts are measured in days, not hours. This tent here is uh, used to disinfect the dead bodies, and I think that's one of the most traumatic things. We see people die all the time, but not like this, like not at this rate, not, not this many people who were well just a week or two ago. Yeah, so it, it can get quite brutal. In the last available space outside, plastic tents are being erected to handle this and future waves. These are the few extra resources. We have basics. We don't have uh, fancy treatment. We, we can't ventilate our patients. We don't have the capacity to ventilate. And there's no one else to step into the wards, just Dr. Piri and her fellow Malawian doctors who for months have battled the virus that now, because of a new South African variant, is only getting worse. I don't remember feeling like this in the first wave. Maybe I'll just feel your pulse here. Just Doctors Without Borders is fighting to get vaccines to Malawi and at the very least into the arms of healthcare workers like Piri, one of just three remaining specialists covering four full COVID wards, the other five all out sick with the virus. Literally the country is bleeding and people are dying and like... All the systems are like really strained with this particular wave. Some countries have 
ordered many times the number of vaccines than the size of their population. What impact could that have? The issue right now is more a time issue than a quantity issue. The health system falls apart. Um, you know, it's not only people dying from COVID that we're going to have here. We're going to have excess mortality related to other diseases. Hope is still being kept alive, if only because of Dr. Piri and the nurses and the workers constantly delivering precious oxygen tanks to the wards. But Piri says to survive as a doctor at Queen's also means being a realist. We had to accept that our situation will be different. You have to come in mentally prepared and, and you have to tell yourself that I'm going to be well and I'm going to look after myself and, and we'll do with what we have, but we'll do our best. After all, her skills as a doctor are honed by the years of never carrying a full arsenal of weapons. 20-year-olds in Europe might get vaccines before you get a vaccine. Sure. How does that make you feel? It's, it's brutal, but it's reality. Why would this moment be any different? Well, at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, they really want those vaccines soon. These tents that you see behind me could be here for some time because they expect another wave and then another wave if they don't get population immunity through a vaccine. But in the immediate future, what they're asking for and what Doctors Without Borders is pushing for is some 40,000 vaccine doses. That's it, Julia. They say that could come into the country and help those frontline workers keep safe and stop their health system from buckling entirely. Julia? So important that you're telling this story, David, 40,000 vaccines and that point about a 20-year-old in the West getting it versus a healthcare worker that just vitally needs it there to save and protect people. <sighs> David, thank you. Thank you so much for that, David McKenzie. All right, coming up on First Move, the rise and rise of the machines where drone technology might take us literally up next. Welcome back to First Move. Whether they're being talked about in ads during the Super Bowl or being embraced as the future of delivery, drones have helped revolutionize the business model of companies around the world. Now the airborne tech is being used to help an industry that's usually focused on the ground, agriculture. Eleni Jokos has more. From 3D mapping to deliveries, construction site management to rescue operations, the commercial use of drones is soaring around the world. But as drones take to our skies, entrepreneur Rabi Bourashid believes their biggest potential is on land. The next big idea is to improve on many aspects of the, of the agricultural phases. In Dubai, Bourashid runs one of the world's top drone service providers, operating drones for the construction, mining, infrastructure and oil and gas industries. But he is now shifting his focus to agriculture, betting drones can make the sector sustainable. We're making sure that we're not wasting water, we're not wasting uh, feed, we're not wasting uh, things, so that, that's what the drone brings into the table. By using smart sensors, 3D mapping systems and thermal cameras, Burashid says drones can check the precise amount of water crops need, detect early diseases 
and feed plants without wasting fertilizer. When you use drones, you can calculate what exactly needs to be fed, what exactly doesn't need to be fed, and precisely just you know, take care of these plants. You could easily increase your crop by, let's say, 5 to 10% when you're using drones for early detection. The agriculture drone market could be worth as much as $5.7 billion by 2025, according to research by Markets and Markets. While the use of drones in the sector is still niche, Burashid believes as the technology becomes more advanced and efficient, farmers will adopt more readily. You could see that there's going to be demand for sustainable ways to go forward. What the drone does is bring this to marginal farmers, bring this technology to everyone. More drones may soon glide over cities and make deliveries at our doorsteps. And with continuing advances in technology, could also make a positive difference in the lives of farmers around the world. Eleni Jakas, CNN. Pretty awesome. Okay, one final look at Bitcoin as we wrap up the show. Still trading at record highs, $43,700, as you can see there, up almost at 12.5%. It's up 50% so far this year, just to give you a bit of perspective. The news, of course, the uh, SEC filing that Tesla has invested $1.5 billion of cash on their balance sheet into Bitcoin. We know that Elon Musk is a crypto fan. He's fueling today's rise, more institutional interest in that digital asset. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.